So let's go ahead and start. Um, and while you while you find those verses, I am going to go ahead and start talking. Now I'm going to tell you this, um, just in terms of of my dear love for you and the fact that um, I think today is is actually the anniversary of when I became pastor of this church 13 years ago. It was the last Sunday in July. Was when I now I was the interim pastor the first Wednesday in March of that same year. And then I actually was called as pastor officially uh, the last Sunday in July. So I think this year, is this last Sunday in July? I think this is. So, so I, I need nor require nor enjoy any applause. So don't worry about that. Um, what I was going to say was this. Every time I preach, I go through this kind of problem. And the problem is, is that you start... I'm one of those kind of people who doesn't think the world's going to change on my message. I'm the one who thinks, yeah, maybe this might just be the worst message ever preached. And that's what I'm going through every time. Like, how, how bad can this possibly be? I'm such a fatalist. Or, and I think of all these problems, like maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. Or even with this one, as I was writing, thinking, I think this is going to be boring. I face that one all the time. You can be long. You can't be long and boring. Okay, those two don't work together. And so as I, as I worked on this, I said, God, I don't want to bore them. I just realized that, that for us, even though I've been here 13 years now, as, as a pastor, we'll never become who we need to be in Christ if I don't preach all the hard things I'm supposed to preach. I'll just be honest with you. It's not all shouting and hand-raising. It would be fun if it was. But there are going to be a lot of things we're going to talk about in this room that are going to lead us to walk out the door and say, and really assess who we are long term. Not every issue can be handled with a prayer at the altar. I'm not saying they're unimportant. I'm saying prayers at the altar often lead us to deal with issues over the, the days and weeks and months and years. Um, I remember sitting in my office with a young woman, myself and our evangelist who was preaching. A dear friend of mine was preaching our revival. We spoke to this young woman. And his response was something I'd been toying with forever. And what he said was, was that, you don't need to say anything right now. I said, you need to go off and get alone and spend a week dealing with this. You know, we think that we can come down the aisle and just say something and, and everything's okay after that. To be honest with you, our problem with sin is more often not way more severe than that. And it, it takes a long time to, to heal. And so this may be one of those issues that's that going to walk away thinking, well, that was nice, but it's not going to be, it may not jazz you up, okay, for lack of a better term. I just believe it's something we've got to talk about to grow. So let's get with O.S. Hawkins. Got really, lots of us in the ministry really respect O.S. Hawkins. Writes a lot of books about pastors and finances and pastors and holiness. A really, really principled, orthodox guy. He wrote this, he said, that principle, excuse me, the principal hindrance to the advancement of the kingdom of God is greed. It is the chief obstacle to heaven-sent revival. I believe that it is safe to say there can be no continuous revival without hilarious giving. And I fear no contradiction. Whether there is hilarious giving, excuse me, wherever there is hilarious giving, there will soon be revival. If there's anything we've been craving around here for 13 years, was real, legitimate, lasting, Isle of Wight type revival. 
Do you know what I mean? That has both deeply spiritual impact and at the same time changes us who we are on a daily basis. It's not a revival of shouting and, and nonsense, but a revival that begins with broken hearts and continues when our hearts aren't as broken seeming. It changes the way we do business. That's what God's people need. Is this call to change the way we do business. Now, Hawkins said greed stands in the way. And I want to look at that. Look, first off, our goal in preaching this in this preaching is to establish a, a, a Bible-based Christian theology of giving which translates to a biblical philosophy of giving which instructs and molds our entire lives. We're talking about understanding what the Bible says about giving and having that translate deep into my heart so that it changes the way I give. Because the philosophy is how I operate my life, right? I don't mean some kind of weird school nonsense. I mean, if I ask you what your philosophy on maintaining your car is, there are people in this room who have some very deeply held beliefs about how you maintain a car, right? Very deeply held beliefs. That philosophy says how you do that, doesn't it? That's all I'm talking about. I'm not talking about a philosophy of giving. I'm not talking about something very high-minded. I'm talking about you out there, me in the pulpit, you in the pews, understanding this is how I give. I know why God has led me to do what I do. That's the philosophy. So all I'm asking. Look, Hawking contends, or Hawkins contends, as I always do, that every matter the Bible touches on is a gospel issue and that we cannot afford to take any biblical teaching lightly. So you can sit out there in the pew and think, man, giving's that big. No, it is. And it's not about paying the light bill. We always get back to that. Paying the light bill. You know what? The light bill will get paid. Where we have to bear shame is when our patterns of giving affect how the gospel is pronounced around the globe. Because remember, we got one mission, right? And it's not to have, it's not to 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 have fun, and it's not to fellowship, and it's not to do all these things. It's not to have a church so that your daughter or your son can get married. It's not all those things that we blame on the church. Those are all good things, but they're not God things. The one purpose for the church is the proclamation of the gospel around the globe. That's the only reason God invented the church. That's it. Our marching orders are given. Right? Go. Tell. That's why we exist. So when our giving patterns affect that, then there's shame and then there's guilt and then there are problems. Look, if greed, and what I'm going to say is this, no matter how it manifests, I took the liberty of dividing up greed so that you would understand exactly what I'm talking about. I think there are two different kinds of greed. I think there's the love of money, and then I think there's the trust of money. Do you understand the difference? I think there are people all over the globe. I've met some rich guys in my life. I've really never met a rich guy that didn't really, really, really like money. That's why they got it. That's what they pursued. If it's what you want more than anything, you get it. I think there's a lot of rich people out there for whom riches have become a huge stumbling block. But I think there are a lot of us normal folks out there that have fallen into a habit of greed. And we fall into a habit of greed not because we love money, but because we trust it. We feel better and more secure in our lives if our bank account's at a certain place. You ever met anybody like that? I know a ton of people like that, guys. Now, they don't love it. They don't love it. They don't worship it. 
but they fall into a habit of greed because they've started to trust. They've started to trust money more than they trust their God. They'll trust Him, but the bank account's got to be a certain way. Now, I know a lot of people like that. There, there's, an, there's an influx of greed into us, people like us. Look, if greed is the opposite of generous, trusting, Jesus-centered giving, I'm going to tell you, if greed's in my life or greed's in your life, either way it manifests, we're never going to give and trust and be sacrificial with money the way God is really commanding us to be. We're never going to do it. We're never going to do it then we know that greed in a church will always destroy revival. If, we, if I just give O.S. Hawkins credit for being on to something, I really am giving him credit because I believe that he is, then what we can say is this, as long as greed is a part of our daily life, you and me, what we do outside the church affects what we do inside the church. What we do outside the church and in our homes and what we preach and what we teach and what we insist upon affects what goes on here. The Holy Spirit is held back by you and I. Now, we've got to remember that. We've got to get that one straight. These things aren't, aren't nonsensical. They aren't unimportant, but they are vitally important because ultimately they affect what the Holy Spirit is willing to do right here in our midst. So we've got to get this straight. We've got to understand that. If our greed holds that back, then our greed holds back revival. This is the defining issue of our time in every legitimate doctrinal church. I mean that. What I'm saying is this. I'm also parsing this idea that some people call something revival that's not really revival. There are all kinds of churches in this world that busting at the seams. And that's not necessarily revival. And I'll tell you, this is why I think that. Hey, look, and I'm not casting stones at anybody in particular. TV more than anything. Others, other churches which depart from the truth are rapidly expanding. You seen that happen? Yes. You go watch a preacher and in the world they're talking about. See him preach in the pulpit and you never even see a Bible. Never even see the Bible in the pulpit. Look, I don't care if you read off your iPad. Bring it up there just so everybody knows where it comes from initially. With little things like this. I mean, they do that. Those churches are busted the seams. You know Why? They're rapidly expanding because the truth limits what we say and do. We are limited in this room by what the Bible says. I can only come to this pulpit and promise you what the Bible promises. I can only come to this pulpit and condemn what the Bible condemns. And I can only come to this pulpit and endorse what the Bible endorses. I am limited by what the Bible says. You go to a church that's not limited by the Bible. My goodness, you can say and promise and do anything. And it does grow in a way. It expands a pulpit and an approach without limits will grow exponentially into everything the church has no right to become. Six flags over Jesus. Okay? So there, there you go. There you go. When I'm talking about revival, I want legitimate revival and not six flags over Jesus Bible. Revival. What I want, what I'm preaching today is to seek revival in this church through very careful, heartfelt, and deeply spiritual obedience to exactly what God says in every issue. Try God on for size. Take a tiny little church like this with plenty of room to grow and say, you know what? If we'll be absolutely faithful, God will add to these numbers. I know, I understand this. We will come in and preach sometimes that people walk out the door and never come back. I don't know why. 
I don't know why. I do not know why. I'm not condemning anyone. I'm not calling anybody out. I'm not doing any of those things. But I'm here to tell you, if, if I really preach the truth, and Brian and Kyle really preach the truth, and you really believe it and we really practice it, watch what God will do in our midst. Dare God to act. And see that He won't bring like-minded people who love the gospel to your doorstep. See if He won't do it, because He will. Because He's already done it from around the, the, the nation. He's brought He'll do it again. That's all I'm saying. Look, though we're studying Paul, I think if there's any source for what I'm really meaning to talk about in terms of, of revival and how it's joined with our giving and our obedience, it's back in Isaiah, in Isaiah 57, verse 15. He says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit, to receive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart, excuse me, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So God looks at it, and so great is this, that in the midst of this obedience, in lowliness, in the midst of a willingness to, to submit ourselves to God in lowliness, God's promise is to revive the lowly. There's no such, there's no such promise to revive the mighty. So we look around and say, we just said, Brother John, we don't have very much, and we're trying to be faithful with what we have. I'm telling you, be faithful with what you have and watch God revive you. Be faithful with what God's given you and watch what God will do. His promise is revival to the lowly. Look, here's the example. You know, through the, through the giving of the lowly, for Paul it was those Macedonians. The example that Paul gives us is that Macedon was dreadfully poor and they gave far beyond their means. They gave sacrificially and that God is going to do mighty things in Macedon. You know what? They may not have ever looked any richer, but I guarantee you this much. Eternally, they are wealthy beyond the dream of any billionaire. Eternally wealthy. God blessed in that. That's His promise. What does He do? The gospel grows because of their sacrifice. Then the lowly are revived and the contrite are enlivened by the Spirit of God who waits for the opportunity to bring joy and blessings to the church which humbly acknowledges sin. So there's another part of this pattern it is today. I believe that many of us in this room are going to be called upon to acknowledge sin. Called upon. I don't know your hearts. I'm not following you around. I don't know your lives in that way. I just believe that God is calling us today to acknowledge sin. It may be financial sin. It may be. I don't know what it is. And I'll be quite blunt with you. I don't really care in that way. My job is to love you and to preach exactly what God has laid upon my heart. And if we're a church that today needs to acknowledge sin, then we'd better acknowledge it. What is acknowledge it? Repent. We may be called to repentance today. That turns from it, that's repentance, and seeks the face of the Almighty Savior through His Holy Word. Look, I'll be, I'll be blunt with you. Though. If there's one thing that I think um, I can add to what I've already placed in front of you in these notes, is this. Is that if I am willing to neglect God in one aspect of the Scriptures... I'm willing to ne neglect God in many aspects of the Scriptures. If I'm willing to say that God doesn't really mean that, then I will say to myself in the dark of night that God doesn't really mean much more serious things. Much more serious things. Now, let's look in verses 11 and 12. We'll look at first. 
Um, so now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Look, point number two. The call to give is a demand to contribute sacrificially, but proportionally. But proportionally. Now, I want to explain. Look, God governs our financial lives with both an acknowledgement of the limited resources available to most of us. Look, His teaching is grounded in both our reality and His super-reality. And we're going to deal with that issue. Um, Are there limitations to God? No. Are there limitations to what God can do for you financially? No. The same original point is vitally true. Now, we understand, those of us who are a little bit aware... That that's a slippery slope, isn't it? We see it on television. You can go order the Miracle Spring Water and you can get money in the bank. It's what the promise is. Keep that in mind. I'm going to cover that in a moment. But you can do that. That's what, that's what the promise on television is. I don't believe that's true, right? You understand that. Nobody's missing that point. Okay, I don't want anybody thinking I've changed because I haven't. If it maybe gotten worse, is the change of His inexhaustible power. We are so commanded as believers to make a to make giving a natural extension of God's sacrificial system into our lives of holiness and separation. So we are still commanded that giving is vital as an act of worship for you and I. If I'm not giving, then I'm not worshiping. Because the heart of Old Testament worship was the gift of the sacrifice. Without the gift of the sacrifice, there was no worship. We're still operating under that paradigm. If I'm not giving, I'm not worshiping. When, as when Solomon reminds us in Proverbs 19, verse 17, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. As, look, as an illustration of, of divine wisdom. The rule displays that our Lord's teaching on Christian giving is mindful of His limitless ability to multiply people and resources, but understands our finite, but you mean, but His understanding of our finite perception of what we are capable of possessing. So what, what I'm saying here is this, is that while we acknowledge biblically that God is capable of doing absolutely anything in and through us in any way, He also understands that you and I don't always get what He's doing. We don't. We don't always believe that He'll do what He says He will. And even when He does do what He says He will, we oftentimes don't use it the way we should. So we have to remember those things. Resources are seen as limited by us because people need this. I think God is absolute... I know He's brilliant. I know the Bible is clearly about that. But it shows in this how God takes a world of very limited... Anybody here feel like you just got more than you need? i never seen your hands go up doing that. i never said, yeah, i got plenty. Here, take some. Huh. I bet, I'd be willing to bet that virtually everybody in this room is a little scared over money, aren't you? Just a little bit. 
Now, I think you're scared over money because like almost all of us, you spent some time in your 20s married when you didn't have any. And you learned to be scared of it, didn't you? You made some mistakes, right, Nanny? And, and now you've learned what a, what, a, what a hard thing money can be. How bad it can be when you don't have any. Right, Jan? You can, you can be like that. You know, understand, we all understand this. I get it. My family, you get it in yours. Okay? I think God flourishes in a world of limited resources. Listen, not because Christ needs to pragmatically recognize how things really are. I think we tend to put that off on Him. Which says, I know Jesus said that, but Jesus knows how things really are. No, our problem is that Jesus knows how things really are. And He knows what He's capable of doing in the midst of your poverty. Just like He did in the midst of the poverty of the Macedonians. And He never says the Macedonians starve. It seems the Macedonians flourish by giving beyond their means. That was the key to flourishing for the Macedonians, was to open their pocketbook, not close it. Instead, the spiritual need to give in consideration and defiance of temporal but real economic conditions does not limit God's potential blessings. It causes us to be defiant, even though, Kenneth, we realize how poor we are. Brian, it causes us to be defiant, even though we realize how limited our finances are. How one check won't solve every problem. But he causes in us a God-centered defiance of what everybody else might call reality. I know there are people in this room who've done this. You've given to somebody in need when you weren't sure you could meet your own needs. But you opened your heart in the very same way we've added, we've added water to the soup pot, haven't we? We didn't think we had enough to feed who we had. But we knew we trusted a God who stretches resources infinitely to stretch those resources. So you're getting, I hope you're getting what I'm saying here now. It doesn't limit potential blessings, but brings to our heart a need to prioritize our prayers and our resources to meet the demands of the gospel. Because we are believers in a world in which we perceive resources to be limited, it now forces each and every one of us to say, Gospel first. Church first. Proclamation of the truth first. Missionaries first. Evangelism first. It, it provides us opportunity to say no to our own needs and yes to the needs of God. Say no to our own needs and yes to the needs of the gospel. Say no to our own needs and say yes to giving to a missionary. That God takes that world of limited resources and uses that to guide our hearts to care only about the things that really matter, right? Hey, look, if, if God were not an aspect of your finances, we'd all do that anyway, wouldn't we? You'd take your money and you'd apply it to the thing that you felt was the most pressing. If you were sick and you needed a doctor, you'd save for what? To go to the doctor. If you were hungry and needed food, you'd save what? To buy food, wouldn't you? All God does is take a world of limited resources and leads us to concentrate our efforts and our finances on those things that really, really, really matter. Which now leads us this idea right here. Am I really making the goal of my finances the proclamation of the gospel or my own comfort or my own needs? Far too often, 
We've seen proponents of the health and wealth gospel promote their own financial benefit at the cost of their flock. What I'm saying is this. We said if you just open your eyes a little bit and look at the church as a whole and include everybody in it, what you're going to do is you're going to see some people out there, man, that are getting money and going crazy with it. I don't have to call names here, but they're famous. Uh, by the way, there's an Instagram called Preachers and Sneakers. Check it out. It will make you weep. The same pastor who first got in trouble for buying a $5,500 pair of shoes. $5,500. I didn't know there was such thing as $5,500 shoes. But apparently there is, brother buddy. All the clothes I've ever bought myself do not have to $5,500. Not anywhere near. In fact, most of the cars I've driven added up together. Would not add up to $5,500, including the $600 thing I got now. Just wouldn't. Just wouldn't. $5,500. And then I felt kind of bad about that, but then I found out that he bought his wife a $100,000 Lamborghini. Once again. And then I went on there just thinking, maybe I'm just wrong about this because I don't want to be just condemning. And I'm scrolling through this thing, and the dude is standing there in a $10,000 coat. And look at don't look at other states now. A friend of mine was in Jackson. For a while, was a pastor in Jackson. I've told some of you this before. If you haven't heard the story, then you've been neglected. Who made a quarter of a million dollars a year. And he had his church construct a tunnel from his study to the pulpit. So he didn't have to talk to people. The only person who saw him was his stylist. Look, that's what happens. That's the church there, guys. That's the church. And look, and you scroll down this thing, you'll see some people that are almost acceptable. I didn't say acceptable, almost acceptable. So here's the point. Finance is corrupt. They just do. Great amounts of money corrupt. Look, I don't allude to these people I'm talking about because I think they're more personally corrupt than other people. But because I realize that financial matters are the greatest opportunity for corruption that the body of Christ faces. We always think, oh, if it's sex, it's really money. It's really money that destroys churches. Because you open the door for corruption through money and you let every other corruption in. Billy Graham said this, if a person gets his attitude toward money straight, it will help straighten out almost every other area in his life. You know, if, if, I'm, crooked, if I'm crooked in terms of my morality, guaranteed I'm crooked in my money. Guaranteed I'm not obedient in, in, in God's call on money. Money is vital. The nature of our giving reveals who we are in the Savior and giving in a fallen world of limited resources inspires the hearts of men and women to give sacrificially according to their means for the good of the kingdom. Giving sacrificially according to our means for the good of the kingdom. That's, you talk about the philosophy of giving, that's a philosophy of giving right there. Look, Jesus tells us in Luke 12, 33-34, Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Look, I believe that Christ knows us completely. And His infinite knowledge of men and women inspires the words of Paul to lead us to focus our finances on heaven and not on the things of this world. If there's one goal we've got to have today, financially, before we leave, it's not retirement, it's not paying off our house, it's not all those things that are good, and listen to me, important things. But our highest goal has got to be the kingdom of God. 
If my highest goal is not the kingdom of God and my finances, let me tell you, throughout my life, it has not been. But if my highest goal is not the kingdom of God and my finances, then understand this much, then the God of this world is now the God of my finances. If my highest goal is not Him, then I have a goal. It just doesn't come from Him. Not because God doesn't have enough for Saul, but because people would waste more as example after example leads us to believe. I just took the church. I just took those examples before to say, I don't think those people are worse than me. I think they've not been blessed that they were given this maybe great ability to communicate or make people like them or whatever. I don't have any of that. Everybody hates me and I never can communicate anything. What happens? They, can, they do that and they get, they get money, Brian, and they just get corrupted by it. And they can't see how buying a $10,000 coat is a bad thing. Can't wrap the brains around how come they can't have what they want. It's, it's nonsense. It corrupts. The heart which is completely surrendered to Christ and fully enamored with the Savior and His truth will sacrifice daily bread. So instead of buying all those things that, that they don't need or we don't need, we sacrifice daily bread trusting God for its replacement for the opportunity to give generously to the gospel. So that everything about my finances becomes about the gospel. And I'll sacrifice what I think I need knowing that God's good for that. What matters is the gospel. What matters is that worship. And finally, verses 13 through 15. He writes, For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that it may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever, whoever gathered little had no lack. God expresses to the church a definition of equitable giving, which both provides for the needs of the gospel and continues the necessity of sacrificial worship among His people. Look, these three verses are bound together by a single Greek word which carries with it the heart of this point. Isotes. The word is used only three times in all the Scripture. Only by Paul. In these two verses back to back and in Colossians chapter 1. And it means, essentially, likeness and condition or proportion, fairness or equality. Look, if there's a limit in viewing the tithe simply as 10% of the person's financial income, that would be the consideration of fairness. Not necessarily for this room, but for the church as a whole. Now, the illustration I gave you last week was this. you got somebody sitting on the front row making $1,000. And you got somebody sitting on the front row by them making $1,000 a month, and somebody next to him making $10,000 a month, we would tell ourselves that 10% of that is fair because it's the same. But the same and fair are not the same thing. The fact of the matter is, the guy's got $900 to live on and the guy's got $9,000 to live on are not living equitable lives. It makes biblical logic, biblical logic, for the rich who've been blessed to have a greater share of the financial responsibility for the kingdom. It makes biblical logic. And I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you. Okay. You may be doubting me. That's okay. I got you. Everyone from billionaire to pauper is expected to give sacrificially and proportionally. Now that's beyond, that's, that's across the board. Equity captures the biblical imperative to involve the heart and not just logic and serving and giving to Christ. 
Christian offering is at its heart a spiritual act of worship and not just a legal act of obedience. We still have to pray about what is really sacrificial and proportional, what is fair and just and equal. See, there's no hard and fast formula within the Bible for this. There isn't. I think the reason why we so radically embrace the tithe is because the tithe is easy. It takes no prayer to tithe. You say, well, it's hard. No, it's not. You know exactly what it is. It is easy to calculate. A fifth grader knows enough math to calculate the tithe. Easily knows enough math. It takes guts, maybe. But it doesn't take weeks and weeks and weeks of prayer to come up with, you're supposed to get 10% of your income. We wanted that because it was easy and it was straightforward. It was across the board. I believe biblical giving is, is much more spiritual and much more complicated. Wonderfully complicated. It's an act of obedience, but it's an act of worship. Christian offering is at its heart a spiritual act of worship and not just a legal act of obedience. We still have to pray about what is really sacrificial and proportional, what is fair and just and equal. Poet and philosopher Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote, Without a rich heart, wealth is an ugly beggar. To view this in terms of only percentages deads the heart to the idea that personal wealth is a blessing of God to be used for the propagation of the gospel around the globe. Money is supposed to be a privilege which is used for greater glory for God. But Paul speaks to the wealthy. 1 Timothy 6, 17-19. This is what he gives us. He says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. The storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Also inherited in Paul's teaching of giving and the rule of wealth are Christ's words in Matthew 19, 24. Got to always remember these. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Wow. Now, once again, we want to wiggle around that and not take it literally. He meant exactly what he said. Riches are a huge impediment to the kingdom of God. It's easy for the poor man to cry out to God. It's much, much harder for the rich man. It's much, much harder for the man who's always going to make his way by his own wealth to then turn around and cry out to God. Paul instructs us. What does he tell us about wealthy people? Put every hope in Christ, not in riches. Do good. Be generous. Store up treasure by implication in heaven what Christ promised that it can never be lost. Another problem with a rich man is what? He lose all his money, can't he? Rich people become poor all the time. Heavenly rich people never become poor. Finally, take hold of real, true, eternal life. He said don't be kept out on the other side of that needle. Seek the impossibility of salvation in God. Because in God, all things are possible. Our attitude toward financial blessing is an affirmation of the sovereignty of God over everything in His role as giver of all good things to His people. To Christ Jesus, we owe everything. And our giving reminds us of a biblical truth expressed by, by Crown Financial's Howard Dayton, who said, What I possess, God owns. Always goes over like a lead balloon in churches. We work so hard for what we have. And we say it, and we kind of mean it, but the reality is, is that the car I might complain about, or the house I live in, or the clothes I wear, whatever we got, really belongs to God first. And you only have them because He blessed you with them. 
Your efforts paid off in a fallen world full of toil because God loved you and blessed you. It's the only reason. It's the only reason. The Lord reveals to us the standard of giving in His Christ Himself. Revealed in verses like Mark 10, 45. It says, For even the Son of Man came not to serve, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. Christian giving is modeled after the sacrifice of Jesus, who came, who lived, who died, and rose for a hate-filled, sin-stained, future-deprived world. Despite our curses and our... And for our good, Jesus bore our sins and paid the ultimate price for our transgression. You want to know what Christian giving looks like? Look to the cross. You want to know what Christian giving looks like? Look to the grave. That's what Christian giving looks like. Giving begins with repentance and belief. Understand that? My life of worshiping God through giving began when I repented of my sins and believed the gospel. If you've never repented of your sins and never believed the gospel, then there's no use in giving. Keep your money. Keep it. If you've never repented of your sins and never believed the gospel, not because we don't, not because we could not use it or put it to good use, but because I want you to receive the ultimate, the ultimate worship for it. Repent of your sins and believe the gospel. A person will never be capable of giving to God what he deserves until they know Him as Savior and surrender to Him as Lord. If giving is wrong in your life, the matter to be settled is in your heart and not your head. The instrument of giving is not the head, it's the heart. Examine your heart today and surrender your life to Christ in every way that He teaches Let's stand together.